0: Let's open our Bibles to the 13th chapter of Romans, and by His grace, let's finish our study of the great subject of authority to civil government. And the Lord is converting us. He has been converting us for several decades, and I'm thankful for that. He saved us from being rebellious against the government a long time ago, and He is keeping us that way and perfecting us that way. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. They that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, But to the evil, wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Amen and amen. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word and for opening these verses to us. We have been through the first four, and we want to consider verses 5 through 7 today, teaching us our submission and our obedience to civil government. Verse 5 opens with the words, Wherefore ye must needs be subject. Wherefore is drawing a conclusion from those first four verses. In the first four verses we were taught, First, in verse 1, that civil authority and the rulers of in civil government are ordained by God. And that's powerful right there that God is the one that invented, God is the one that designed civil government. Without civil government, the world would implode in wickedness because there wouldn't be a, a restraint against men stealers and murderers of fathers and of mothers if it wasn't for government. Civil government protects us from each other and it blesses us with prosperity and protection for international trade, for commerce and business, for us to prosper. Second, in verse 2, those that resist civil government and the rulers are resisting the ordinance of God and they're going to bring upon themselves damnation. That word damnation we understand to be judgment, punishment, even capital punishment or execution by the civil ruler. Because if you disobey, he is God's minister to bring revenge on your life. He is God's minister. Three times in these seven verses, civil rulers like Nero, civil rulers like Adolf Hitler, civil rulers like Mao Zedong, civil rulers like President Barack Obama are God's ministers. And we're supposed to submit to them. In verse 3, we submit to them because they are not a terror to good works. If you obey them and keep their laws, they'll praise you and reward you and protect you and you can benefit under their rule, including the men that I just listed. It was the ones that didn't want to keep the laws of those governments that were punished. Verse 4 says, he is the minister of God to thee for good. And we understand that good to be civil good. We understand the good works of verse 3 to be good works of citizenship. And I hope that the young men in this assembly have heard and understood the interpretation of verses 3 and 4 so they cannot be misled by those who hate civil government and will devise any sort of way to escape the authority of this passage. I hope that you'll remember. In the first clause of verse 3, there are three errors made. For rulers are not a terror to good works. Remember, some take the word rulers and make it gospel ministers. That these seven verses are talking about preachers. Which it is not at all. It's talking about civil government. But that's a heresy. And that's an effort to avoid the force of the passage. It then says good works. And they make those good works all sorts of different things. Constitutional good works. Moral good works. Biblical good works. Christian good works, and it's none of those things. It's civil good works. The governments that I listed, the governments in the history of the world, even the governments that are described in the Bible outside of Israel, God never raised up governmental rulers to promote His religion. God raised up civil civil government and civil rulers in order to protect us from murderers, thieves, contract breakers, foreign armies, and so forth, for us to enjoy peace and prosperity under their rule. That's the second error they make. By modifying the word good works and taking it out of this passage and making it something that it is not in order for them to condemn officials who are not promoting Christianity. God never intended for kings to promote Christianity. If there is a king that promotes Christianity, he is showing great and abundant mercy toward us. And it is very rare in the history of the world that there has ever been a Bible Christian ruler over a nation. And don't refer to the man that gave us our King James Bible because he had no use at all for Baptists and he had them put to death and he had them imprisoned. The third thing they do in that first part of verse 3 is they make it a conditional if statement. If rulers are not a terror to good works and if Rulers are a terror to evil works and so forth. They make it a conditional statement like a litmus test, which is a political test to see whether they're going to obey or not. And then it's up to their judgment. Well, I don't think our government is fulfilling verse 3. Therefore, I don't owe it any responsibility. But this is not an if conditional statement. This is not a litmus test. This is an absolute statement of all civil governments. All civil governments are not a terror to good works when the good works are rightly understood as the good works of citizenship. All conservative commentaries in the past, and when I say in the past, I mean before the 19th century, all understood exactly what I'm preaching to you. It is only in this late day of rebellion against government that men come up with ideas to twist verses like this. All our fathers understood this. In the faith. I hope you remember those things. He's the minister of God. In verse 4, it says he's the minister of God to us for good. And this past Wednesday evening, we considered many of the benefits and blessings that we enjoy under our government. But if you do that which is evil, you know, if you're going to sin and rebel against government authority, then you should be afraid because he is not bearing the sword in vain. He has the right and the authority and power of capital punishment. He can roll the tanks in the streets. He can cut your head off. It doesn't matter whether he uses a guillotine, a sword, lethal injection, or electrocution. God gave the civil authority the power of life or death in order to ensure pagans all getting along with each other. And so we have ourselves at verse 5. Wherefore, based on those things, ye must needs be subject... There is a must involved, because it's God's ordination, and damnation is the result if you don't obey. Wherefore, ye must, needs, be subject. You know, he started off this passage by giving an axiom and a commandment. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. He starts with the commandment, then he backed it up with four verses of reasons, And then in verse 5, he's drawing his conclusion again, which is the same as his opening commandment. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject. Now that I've explained to you why you should be subject, ye must be subject. You need to be subject. You must be, because damnation's going to come if you don't. It's God's ordinance that you're resisting. You need to be subject to it. You can you can grant yourself peace and safety and protection in the praise of the ruler if you'll be in subjection. And so we have this opening clause of verse 5. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject. And to subject yourself under them is to submit to them and let them have their way. Let them legislate their laws. Let them execute those laws. Let them interpret their laws. You pay their taxes. You give them the fear and honor they deserve. And you obey them. Keep their commandments. That's what it means to be in subjection under them. And we even to this day call those that are under a king his, his subjects, because they're in subjection under him. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject. Now in this fifth verse, the apostle is going to summarize the first four into two categories, wrath and conscience. Wrath is the ruler's wrath. If you make the government angry, they can burn your house down with a drone or whatever means they choose. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had a different method than our country uses. I like Nebuchadnezzar's effort. You know, if you didn't want to do it Nebuchadnezzar's way, he would chop you in pieces and turn your house into a dunghill. That would be demonstrative. That would look good on the evening news. That would be impressive in the newspapers and on the Internet to see a man's house in a nice subdivision leveled to the ground and the big trucks coming in, dumping dung from a chicken farm or someplace around in a big pile. This is the man who wanted to disobey the king. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. He was God's minister. That is authority in the Bible. That is the way authority ought to be. Authority is not a cooperative effort. Authority is an independent effort by someone that God has put in an office to make decisions for others. And it affects all five spheres of life for us. Wives are under husbands. Children are under parents. Employees are under employers. Citizens are under kings. Church members are under pastors. Five spheres of authority. Old Testament, the same as the New Testament. And it works wonderfully when it works according to scripture. It's a wonderful thing. We have two categories. Look at this fifth verse. Wherefore ye must needs be subject. You must obey the rulers. You Christians that are doubting whether you should obey the Roman government, you must obey them. You Christians that are doubting whether you should obey the Roman government, you need to obey them. You must needs. Two reasons. Not only for wrath. Now he. this is a transitional verse. And it's a neat transition. He has been emphasizing wrath and now he's going to emphasize conscience. Not only for wrath but also for conscience. See the wrath has been mentioned in verses 2, 3 and 4. In verse 2 it was called damnation. In verse 3 you ought to be afraid. In verse 4 he's the executor of wrath upon them that disobey. And now he's transitioning. We want to under, you can understand this. I don't need to be long. I have been long. For 3 Sundays times 2 sermons. And I commend you for your careful attention. And you're listening for those sermons. This is a very important subject. This subject has tested and tried a number of us in the past, and we do not want to be guilty of disobeying the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, in His commandments for us to obey government. Civil government is a wonderful, wonderful thing. When those in authority can take 315 million Americans... And make them contribute for the common good of all sorts of things, national and international. When a government can protect us, you sleep at night because there are men that are prepared and trained and they bear a sword to patrol your neighborhood at night. So that if you were to dial 911, which is another government benefit, they can... Inform those men patrolling your neighborhood or neighborhoods near yours and have them at your door in a hurry to protect you. And we have men patrolling deep under the seas in nuclear submarines around the world, observing and ready to defend us from international enemies. Because a government collectively took a few bucks from each of us and took a few bucks from foreign nations who wanted to buy U.S. bonds in order to build these submarines that circle the earth unseen to all men with sophisticated ability to know what is going on and they protect us. It's the common good. It's the public defense. When you go to work tomorrow on Monday and you work, the the government is going to protect you from men not paying you, from men lying and stealing from you, from men... Corrupting your resume, from men lying with their resumes, from all sorts of different things, the laws of the employment aspect of our nation, the accounting laws that regulate how financial statements are made, and so forth and so on. It's a wonderful blessing. We just want to look at this passage and realize the good things that it is describing. God did not set up kings to enforce Bible morality. God set up kings to enforce minimum morality. That is, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Our country today is against perjury. Go ahead and perjure yourself and see what happens. And it's against murder. We still put capital criminals to death, though far fewer than we should, but we still do it, and we still do it in America against an outcry of much of the rest of the world against us. Because he bears the sword in reality. And for a good purpose. He doesn't bear it in vain. So we need to be subject not only for wrath. And the wrath has been mentioned that rulers are a terror. When the boots, the iron-shod boots of Roman soldiers were heard on the cobblestone streets of Judea and of Greece and of Turkey, and of Syria, and of Egypt, and of Britain. They drove terror into the hearts of the citizens, and rightfully so. But if you were obeying the government, you didn't need to fear the iron-shod boots of Rome. As long as you were keeping their commandments, which would include taxation, which is the rest of this passage here, you did not have to fear them. This morning on the way to this assembly... A a, a policeman approached in the opposite lane and we passed vehicles. And I remarked to Sherry, my wife again, how that as long as you are driving the speed limit or near the speed limit, you don't have to give a thought to the policeman. He is your friend. He is your protector. He does you good. He praises good citizens. He loves good citizens. But if you're driving too fast, if you have an expired driver's license, if your car isn't registered, if it's not properly insured, what happens when you see the cherry on top? There's terror. You say, well, I don't really... Oh, yes, you do. Do you know how I know? Because there's two lights in the back of your vehicle that come on immediately. They're both red. They're both they're at each corner. They come on immediately because you are afraid because you're doing that which is evil and so he's a terror to you. But when you're doing what is right, he's your friend. You know that from the most elementary, simplest of laws they give us, and those are our traffic laws. Right. So you understand the passage and you know what it means not only for wrath. This wrath is not God's wrath primarily. This is the the ruler's wrath because it's been described as he doesn't bear the sword in vain. And he is the one that gives terror in verse 3. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Paul is addressing these Christians and these Christians had a list. They had a list of reasons why They were questioning whether they should submit to a pagan, oppressive, occupying, tyrannical government that had crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and had cut the head off John the Baptist and had beheaded the Apostle James and was working through the other apostles as well. These questions would well up, should I obey civil government, especially one that pagan, especially one that has taken over my nation? We have a constitution in our nation. We had we had legitimate rulers until Rome came in and occupied us. All these questions would have been in the minds of Christians in Rome. And what does Paul say? Paul ignores them all. He doesn't care about any of those questions. He just says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The Roman government is from God and the governments that I have already listed in this sermon are from God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Amen. Well, whoever is in power right now, and who was in power right then? The Roman Empire. Submit. Be in subjection. And the first reason was wrath, and then for conscience sake. It's conscience sake because it's out of faithfulness to God. Amen. God ordained civil authority, so when you obey the civil government, you are obeying God. If you resist the civil government, you are resisting the ordinance of God. Verse 2. So we do it out of conscience toward God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Keeping your place at Romans 13, of course. But come over to 1 Peter 2 because it explains it a little more thoroughly. And I have been over this many times before, but I want to brand this into your minds so that you'll never forget 1 Peter 2 and how well it explains our obedience to authority that does not conduct itself rightly. Because it doesn't matter. Whether someone in authority does what they're supposed to or not does not affect your duty toward them at all. They, in their position of authority, do not answer to you at all. They only answer upward to God. And by you obeying their commandments for you, you're not endorsing their sinful lifestyle or any other aspect of their wrongdoing. The best example on this point is Matthew 23. And I know I've turned you to 1 Peter 2. Just remember, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 3. Matthew 23 is a chapter dedicated in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ to rip and destroy... Verbally, and condemn the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the most conservative denomination of the Jews. He ripped them in Matthew 23. Woe unto you, serpents! Woe unto you, vipers! Ye shall receive the greater damnation. How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? He rips them, but he opens up Matthew 23 in the first three verses by saying to his disciples, obey them. Obey the Pharisees. Now wait a minute. That's a contra- It is not a contradiction whatsoever. It is only a contradiction in your mind because you misunderstand authority. They were wicked. In their personal lives, they were wicked. In their religious lives, they were wicked. They gave commandments, and they didn't keep them. They wouldn't even lift their finger to bear the burdens that they put upon other men's shoulders. They were hypocrites. They were liars. They were frauds. They were enemies of true religion. Do you understand that? That's what Matthew 23 is all about. And yet, obey them. What they say to do from their position of authority, keep those commandments. Right. This is so precious to help you get over the hurdle of thinking, well, if I if I obey them, then I'm endorsing their... Hy- no. Their hypocrisy is between them and God. Right. They never... No one answers downward. You know, you have been taught that in some of your degree, some of your classes in school possibly, and Americans are deceived to think that, but authority does not answer downward. Authority answers upward. Right. Who is the head of the husband? Christ. Who's the head of Christ? God. Who's the head of the woman? The man. The, man, the husband is. Is the wife the head of the, the husband? No. He answers upward. She answers upward. All spheres of authority. But that that passage about the Pharisees is just sweet to help us understand and lay hold of the fact, though Jesus Christ, right in the very same context, criticized them and he just lists all the bad things that they were doing in their personal lives and in their religious lives and their hypocrisy and how they didn't even do what they commanded others to do, but he said, obey them because they sit in Moses' seat. Right. 1,500 years earlier, Moses had designated 70 elders to take care of him by the advice of Jethro, his father-in-law, because he was going to wear out. Jethro said, you're going to wear out, son, if you don't get some helpers to take the little matters. And so he appointed 70 elders and put some of his spirit upon them, and they would answer the little issues. They sat in Moses' seat. There was authority that had been transferred for 1,500 years And so Jesus could tell his disciples, obey the Pharisees. They sit in Moses' seat, but do not do after their works. Do not follow their personal example. Do not watch their lives and live accordingly. Whatever they tell you to do, you have to do it because they're in authority. And by doing that, all you're doing is obeying God because God put them in a position of authority called Moses' seat, and they're telling you what to do for the orderliness of religion in Israel in the year 30 A.D. That's all. I hope you understand that. I don't have any more time with that. It is a very simple point. It works in all five spheres. We obey our, listen, our government believes in abortion. Our government believes in same-sex marriages. Our government believes in all kinds of things that we don't believe in. But because we pay our taxes to them doesn't mean that we're endorsing them, supporting them, or otherwise agreeing with them. When we pay our taxes to them, we're obeying Romans 13. We're not endorsing abortion. And see, some people will get all confused and think, well, our government supports abortion. I can't pay taxes to a government that supports abortion and pays for abortion. God didn't tell you to make any judgments about what they do. They can do whatever they want to with that money. And do you know who they're going to be responsible to? Not you. God. If you think they're responsible to you, then just make sure you vote next time, and your one vote out of 315 million should carry the day. They're responsible to God. We're responsible to obey them because that's what God told us to do. We're at 1 Peter. It helps us understand the conscience aspect of submission. Remember, there's two reasons that the apostle's given, and that is wrath, the government can punish you, and conscience, because... God wants us to submit, so we submit to honor Him. I want you to be familiar with these passages, and I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, but look at verse 13, and I'm going to read five verses. It sounds so familiar. Should it sound familiar? Should Peter the fisherman sound familiar to Paul the seminarian? Why? Because there's one Holy Spirit that wrote this book. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man... But holy men, plural, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, singular. Beautiful. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. First Peter 2.13 Whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. Does that sound like Romans 13? It sounds exactly like Romans 13. For so is the will of God. See this is why we obey that with well doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men those are pagans that would have accused the christians of being of a rebellious sort as free and they were free because we're part of another nation as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of god God has told us, though we are his children and part of his nation, that we should pay taxes to the nations that we're citizens of while we're here in this world. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Does that sound like Romans 13, verse 7? And here it is, verse 17 here. Okay, let's move on into servants. Verse 18, servants, be subject. Does that sound familiar? Make yourself a subject to your boss. Submit to your boss. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. It doesn't matter if you're working on a job and you have a froward that is an obnoxious, noxious, wicked, evil, bad, naughty boss. He doesn't keep his word. He's cruel. He makes fun of you. He promotes others past you. Whatever the case might be, not only to the good and gentle. And see, there are governments that are good and gentle, and there are governments that are froward. It doesn't matter. There are parents that are good and gentle. There are parents that are froward. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have one whit of effect on those under the authority. They still obey. It doesn't matter at all And the Bible just repeats this for us. And I love 1 Peter 2. I have used it so many times over the last three decades to explain submission to authority. Well, if he would just do such and such better, I would submit. You're a fraud. You're a rebel. That is not taught anywhere in God's Word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Do you reduce your fear if your boss is froward? No. It's all fear to either kind, the good and gentle or the froward. Verse 19, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. What we are dealing with here is not a good and gentle boss, but a froward boss, a bad boss, a wicked boss, by God's definition of the terms. He's bad. He doesn't keep his word. He mistreats you so that it can say in verse 19 that you are enduring grief. You're suffering pain. You're being hurt. You're being hurt on the job. You're enduring pain. You're enduring grief. You are suffering and you are suffering wrongfully. He's wrong. You're right. He's doing something wrong. You're doing something right. And when you do something right, because he's wrong, he punishes you for it anyway, and you're enduring grief. I am repeating myself through these words, because I want. this is the word of the Lord. This is God's religion. This is Jesus Christ's religion. This is how authority works, because there is only one perfect authority figure, and that is God himself and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other authority person is imperfect. Meaning he's never gonna be perfectly good and gentle. Meaning he's never gonna satisfy what you expect out of a good boss, good parent, good husband, good pastor, or good king. It doesn't matter. You obey him anyway. Imperfect authority, practiced like a Christian, is wonderful. Even though it's not perfect. For the, oh, verse 19 is so good. He's enduring grief. He's suffering wrongfully. Sometimes that happens in her government. Sometimes a wife experiences that because her husband's in a bad mood, because her husband's just a pig. Oh, well, you know what I mean. You know, sometimes children have overbearing, harsh, critical, negative parents. Sometimes you work for a boss that way. Sometimes a pastor's that way, impatient, overbearing, critical Whatever the case might be, all these rules the Bible gives us for authority apply to all five spheres. And so you're enduring grief, you're suffering wrongfully, but how do you do it and why do you do it? You do it because of conscience toward God. You know that God gave you that boss. And you know that the Bible says to be subject to that boss with all fear, even though he's not good and gentle, even though he is froward. you are subject to him with all fear. And this is thankworthy. This shows a man with character. This shows a real Christian. This shows a man who is able to submit to authority that is imperfect and to do it cheerfully. And he is deserving of praise and honor in the, in the halls of Christendom because he's obeying a froward boss or we're submitting to a froward government or you're a wife submitting to a froward husband. Or you're a child submitting to a froward parent. This is thankworthy. It shows real character. If you only submit and you only choose to get along with the good and gentle authority figure, you are nothing. You are a lazy, good-for-nothing, worthless piece of garbage. You haven't done anything. That's a vacation. That isn't subjection. Subjection is when somebody tells you to do something you don't want to do. It's when somebody tells you to do something that is wrong, that is unfair, that is mistreating you, and you go ahead and do it anyway. 1 Peter 2. So when we talk about conscience in Romans 13, what do we mean? We mean that because God set up this authority, we do it out of conscience toward God. You know, in in the first five verses, it was about civil government. We're free. I have a different king. We have a different king. And we're free. But we don't use that liberty for maliciousness to be seditious or rebellious as citizens. We submit because God told us to because God ordained the powers that be. There's no power but of God. And so then it moved from that down to submitting to a boss. Well, what about when they're forward? You know, I love a good and gentle boss. You know, the boss I had before this boss, he was good and gentle and it was easy to submit to him. Well, that's why it doesn't count. You didn't really submit to Him. You guys just got along because you were buds. And so the Lord comes along and says, well, what if you have a really bad one and you're enduring grief and suffering wrongfully? It's wrong what's being done by the one in authority over you. It's wrong! I'll admit that. I'm wrong sometimes as a husband. I'm wrong sometimes as a parent. I'm wrong sometimes as a pastor. And I never had a husband... But I've had a father, and sometimes he was wrong. And I've had bosses, and sometimes they were wrong. Does any of that alter the duty of those under authority? None. And you can only show that you have real character, and you're a real Christian, and you really want to do what's right by submitting to someone doing wrong over you. Back to Romans chapter 13. This is It's the whole Word of God. And if you don't get a hold of this, you're going to be frustrated your entire life, because guess what? There's no perfect parents. There's no perfect husband. There's no perfect pastor. There's no perfect government. And there's no perfect boss. And you're in trouble. But we don't have to be in trouble because God's given us an answer for imperfect authority. Are there moody, are there moody fathers? Are there critical fathers? Are there nitpicking fathers? Are there critical fathers? Are there fathers that never encourage their sons? Yes, 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 yes. What else is new? You submit anyway. Does that mean that the Father is right? I just explained that He's wrong. And He's going to answer to God. But He doesn't answer downward. He only answers upward. Romans 13. Wherefore, you must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. You know, the wrath part of verse 5 gets the pagans, and it should get the Christians too, but the conscience part gets the Christians, doesn't it? because we obey out of conscience toward God. And that's what verse 5 is is teaching us, that there's two categories, and Paul has been dealing with the wrath. And so he says, not only for wrath, while I've been been dealing primarily with wrath, now I'm moving on to conscience. It's not only for the wrath of the damnation of verse 2, the fear of verse 3, the sword of verse 4. I want to move on to conscience. But for conscience... Also, also for conscience sake. So we come to verse six and we bring up the subject of taxes and we don't need to spend much time here. If you want to study what we believe about taxes in great detail, it's a document called the Christian and taxes. I did did just a plain Google search yesterday without specifying anything, just put in the Christian and taxes and we're document number two in the whole world of just a simple Google search, no quotation marks or anything, the Christian and taxes, and bang, there it is. It's beautiful. Thank you, Webmaster. It's got hot links in it to all the Bible cross-references, and it is long, and it is thorough, and it goes through all the issues of taxation that the Bible teaches us very quickly here. For, for this cause. You know, when it says for this cause, and it's a singular... You look back at the previous verse, and there's two things there. So which one is this cause? Conscience. There's two things there. There's wrath, and there's conscience. And it says, for for this cause. This cause, this is a demonstrative pronoun, meaning the thing that is near, not the thing that is far. It's pointing out that conscience is what he's now dealing with. So he's dealing with Christians about their conscience. Now, he doesn't need to tell anybody that if you don't pay your taxes, the government's going to be mad. (laughs) That's just one of the easiest ways you can offend them the greatest, is not to pay their taxes. So he doesn't even say that. That's just assumed and understood because of verses 2, 3, and 4, that if you do that which is evil, you should be afraid. And if you don't pay taxes, you should be afraid because the government has to enforce taxation because that's how they get their revenue so they can function. And they will be coming after their dollars. And we know some men that they came after, in and out of this church in the past, decades ago. And we don't ever want to be part of that again. We don't ever want to harbor them. We don't ever want to defend them. We don't ever want to support them. We want to support God's word, God's way for submitting. For for this cause, pay ye tribute also. There's two reasons, obviously, in the previous verse, And conscience is the latter factor mentioned, so the demonstrative pronoun refers to it. Conscience is now the overriding factor as that fifth verse is transitional as the apostle switches from wrath to conscience toward God. And notice, you you can see that it's conscience toward God because look what he says next. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers. See, that's a conscience issue. When you're paying the government, you're paying God's servants. So that's a, that's a conscience, a conscious, a conscience aspect of obedience, not one of wrath. Attending continually upon this very thing, because government has to be 24-7 involved in governing, not investing, business, or wages. They don't have any other way to make money except by your taxes. And so it's a conscience matter. It's not wrath. He's giving us good reasons that our conscience ought to say, you know what? taxes make perfectly good sense. If government is God's minister I should pay them. I don't see any difference in the difference in the Word of God between paying taxes to your civil minister and paying taxes to the minister of the gospel right. They're both God's ministers. they just have different spheres. There's no difference in the Bible. You can't pay the one and think you're noble and not pay the other. They both get paid. The same terminology is used for both. Listen, what is a governor, what is a government or civil rulers doing 24-7? They're involved in governing. When it says there in verse 6, attending continually upon this very thing, what very thing is government continually attending to? Ruling. Being a terror to evil works, and praising those that are good. Being a minister of God to a nation for its good. They're continually at that work. So they don't have time to go run their own businesses, work their own jobs. So they're supported by taxation. What about ministers of the gospel? Does it say in the Bible that a minister of the gospel is not supposed to be entangled in the affairs of this life? Second Timothy chapter two. Does it say a minister of the gospel is supposed to give himself wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine? Yes, it says those things. A minister, a religious minister, gives himself twenty-four-seven to studying God's word and preparing and answering and being ready to exhort, teach, rebuke, warn, and lead a church. He doesn't have time to go work the carnal, a carnal, secular job, and neither does a governor. Because that civil ruler has to be about the business of leading a nation, legislating laws for them, enforcing those laws, interpreting those laws. And so they get paid by taxation. And it makes perfectly good sense. For for this cause, this, this issue of conscience, pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers. Civil rulers are God's ministers. Three times in this passage. Has, has, is it getting through to you? It's getting through to me. Three times they're called God's ministers. They're God's servants. They are doing His will. They are here on earth in place of Him. So they are called in the Bible, gods. Exodus 22, verse 28. Thou shalt not revile the gods. That doesn't mean you shouldn't make fun of Baal. Like Elijah did. When it says, Thou shalt not revile the gods. That means you shouldn't bring a railing accusation against a civil ruler. In agreement with Second Peter and Jude. In Psalm eighty two, verse one, Psalm eighty two, verse six, and Jesus quoted from Psalm eighty two in John ten thirty-five, and he said he used the word gods there, and he knew he said that's the exact word that ought to be back there. The scripture cannot be broken. Civil rulers are called gods because they represent God on earth for the orderliness of society so that neighbors don't kill each other. And when you write a contract, you stand by it, and you don't bear false witness in court, and you don't steal your neighbor's property, and you don't go out at night and pull up your property pin and move it a few feet in a different direction so that you can gain property at the expense of your neighbor. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers. What a high and lofty title that God has given. To not pay taxes is as offensive to God as not paying his ministers under either testament. Because they are both attending continually upon the thing that God has assigned them to do for your benefit. Government is constantly assessing information domestically, assessing information internationally, reconciling laws and determining what ought to be done way beyond us. They have so much input every day. Can you imagine the briefing of a senator or the briefing of a president. Or the briefing of the joint chiefs of staff every day. You know, when you sit for breakfast, instead of asking the wife, who's playing soccer today? Well, Sarah's going to be working at Chick-fil-A, and Esther's going to be playing soccer after school. And I'm not making fun of any family. I'm just wanting you to think about it. Right. You know, this is, this is how we get our, our, do our briefing in the morning. You know, what's going to go on in our family today? And we're thinking through this little tiny, simple schedule of a few little issues. Can you imagine being president of the United States, waking up, wiping the sleep out of your eyes, and having somebody in your bedroom while you're shaving, already starting through what's got to be done this day, and then you sit down at a staff meeting, and your cabinet around you is, is telling you, well, we've got this conflict that has flared up over in the Middle East. We've got this domestically. You know, there's been a hurricane, and they want you to declare it a national emergency, so that they can get FEMA funds, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Do you know what you would say? Excuse me for for a moment. Shut up! And give me some peace! Because you already do it when the wife says five things and it's one more than you were ready to handle that morning. I just want to share with you what it means to be governing, attending continually upon this very thing. They have weighty jobs. I can't even imagine it. I try to imagine it. And I want you to try to imagine it. And you appreciate it when you understand taxation because that's what it means if you're looking at verse 6. For for this cause, for your conscience toward God, pay ye tribute also. Don't just be in subjection to them. Don't just obey them. But also pay their taxes, Christians in Rome. Even though they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, pay their taxes. Remember that Joseph, who was a just man, took his wife, Mary, to Bethlehem to be taxed. Even though she was, I need a G word, great with child. When you get there and you deliver, is that decently great with child? Is that seventh month or eighth month? Or is that 39 weeks and two extra days? Did he still go? Was that... Was that uh, unkind of the Roman government to require that? Yes. Was that inconvenient? Yes. Was, that a, was that bordering on cruel? Yes. Was that enduring a little bit of grief as she bounced along in whatever form of transportation Joseph had for her? Yes. But he went. And the Bible says he was a just man. Right. And the Lord took care of them. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So for this cause pay ye tribute also. Out of conscience toward God, we pay their taxes. Because in our conscience we understand they are God's ministers, which has been stated three times in this passage to us, and then the natural reason they attend continually upon this very thing, this is the only way they can make a living, this is the only way they can feed their children, this is the only way they can put a roof over their heads, is if we give them taxes to support them, because they spend their waking hours serving us for the public good in civil government. On to verse 7. Render, therefore, to all their dues. All kinds of taxes. You know, whether it's a driver's license and it's the $15 or it's the registration for your vehicle or it's sales tax or it's employment taxes when you're running your own business or it's being an independent contractor or being an employee of the business. And it makes a big difference when it comes to social security and Medicare taxes or it's, or it's taxes in general or it's fees for this or it's a marriage license that you got to pay a fee for. Render therefore to all their dues. And I want you to notice it's the word render. You transfer by payment what you owe them. When you pay taxes, you are not giving a gift to government. You are not showing the goodness of your heart. You are relieving an obligation of debt. It is due them. Because God put them in that office. They need that money to function. And you owe it to them because you get up every morning and drive on their roads. You bask in the safety of your house every night because there are men out there working the midnight shift waiting to run into somebody who's up to no good, and that's a danger to their lives. They risk their lives for relatively low income to protect you at night. You should be thankful for them. It should be obvious that you should render to them. And it's what you owe them. It's an obligation. Render therefore. Notice the word therefore is again, drawing conclusions from what has been said. Because they're God's ministers, because they're working... The daylight hours in governing, it should be obvious to you that you owe them. Render therefore to all their dues. Let's, don't you hunt and peck, hunt and pick what you like to pay and what you don't like to pay. Like them all. Be cheerful about it. While the Bible doesn't say be a cheerful giver right here, it is to be understood that when you do anything out of conscience toward God, it should be done how? Cheerfully. We should cheerfully pay our taxes. Every one of you should know that you pay far less than you receive in benefits from our government. That is why we have a debt. Do you understand that? So the little bit they ask you to pay should be a easy thing for you to do. Well, what about that debt? That isn't any of your business. If you think it's your business, then the next time, vote for some man who's going to balance our budget in six months. And maybe your, vote will, maybe your vote will carry the day. Write me in. Write yourself in. That's between them and God. You're not going to change it. We're just going to react to it as wisely as we can. Right. And we talk about that from time to time at our men's meetings. Render, therefore, to all their dues. The word do. You know, sometimes men get excited in 1 Corinthians seven three. Let the wife render unto the husband due benevolence. Oh yeah. They like the word do in that passage. But do you like the if you can't like the word do in 1 Corinthians 7:3, if you're not going to like the word do in Romans 13:7. Are y'all with me, men? Amen. We can't hunt and pick in the Bible and say, "Well, I like this one. I'm going to sit down and explain to the wife exactly what this means, due benevolence." Well, I'm sitting down with you right now and explaining what it means in Romans 13:7. Render, therefore, to all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Tribute is usually tax on persons and estates. You know, sometimes in the Bible, tribute was one nation paying a payment to another nation in lieu of surrender and submission. David put the nations around Israel under tribute, meaning from the Euphrates to the Nile, the nations paid David a yearly sum so that he wouldn't bring his army again into their territory. It's, it's like paying the bully down the street to leave you alone. Sometimes tribute means that. Sometimes tribute is just the taxes paid to a govern, a sovereign, a governing sovereign that you owe him. And so it means the larger taxes upon your person or upon your estate. Custom is a tax upon merchandise, importing or exporting it out of cities. For you to bring merchandise into a city of old, or to export merchandise out of that city, either way or both ways, you are going to pay custom. There was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know him, who sat at the seat receiving custom. Matthew. Matthew received custom. It tells us that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The three gospel accounts of Matthew being called into the ministry. That was his job, was to receive custom. The Roman government wanted to take a piece of you manufacturing something and selling it to someone else. So when it left your city, it passed by, a seat of custom, and you paid. You know, when you leave this country and you come back into it, if you're bringing stuff with you or you're taking stuff out, you pay a little bit. They want a little piece of the action. Now, does that irritate you? Are the hackles on the back of your neck rising up that that isn't fair? We should cheerfully pay it. They do a whole lot with our borders. I'm thankful that they take care of things that the way they do. We heard a whole bunch of them on Wednesday evening. Amen. That ever normal granary, Orville. I did some reading this week on the ever normal granary. Our country's had that philosophy for a long time and that practice. Some of it picked up from Joseph in Egypt. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom. That's just a different kind of tax. You know, we pay all kinds of taxes, but they're so small, they're so insignificant, and the benefits that we enjoy are so much greater than what we pay. We should just be thankful, we should pay them cheerfully, we should pay them out of good conscience toward God, and of course we should pay them because the IRS can audit you. That's the wrath. Listen, brethren, when you get down to that time at April 15th, and you read that sentence at the bottom of of your tax return... That you have told everything and it is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help you God, basically. And you sign your name. You know what? You're trembling a little bit when you do that because that's the authority of the government. And the IRS can audit you and come in and lay fines and interest on you because you haven't done it the right way. So we want to do it the right way. We want to do it the right way cheerfully. They are the taxing authority. It doesn't matter whether you think they're constitutional or not. It doesn't have anything to do with anything at all except that you are a rebel and God will punish you. And they will punish you when they get wind of it and decide that you are worth it to them, but you're probably so small they don't care. But God does care because you have such a rebellious attitude. Taxes are a blessing. They should be paid as as cheerfully as we pay God's minister to study the Word of God and preach to us because they're God's ministers, as this passage says so plainly to us. And then it says, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. What's the difference between fear and honor? Fear is is due the king or the magistrate due to his authority, and honor is due to them both for their dignity. The, The distinctions are very minor. Fear has a measure of anxiety and dread because you know that they can hurt you. So you fear them. But you know, when you're doing what is right, you don't fear them in some in some timid, fleeing way. You just don't want to do anything to displease them because you stand in awe of them and you submit with awe and reverence because of the authority they have to hurt you. So fear should be given to those that deserve and have fear. Do them. Policemen deserve our fear. You should never... Be snotty or haughty or rebellious to a policeman. Well, I've got my rights. I hope he tramples all over them and hits you with the butt of his gun right between the eyes. Because that is a terrible job that they have to have to enforce law on a nation that is lawless and thinks that they have so many personal rights. We have a proper recourse if we think that we have had our rights violated. And if you think you have your rights violated, then pursue them legally. And you'll find out that you probably don't. But we give fear to whom fear, and we give honor to whom honor. That honor is in our thoughts. That honor is in our words. That honor is in our gestures. We show them body language that is respectful and compliant and showing the dignity of their office. We show it in our words. We call them sir and we don't call them sir just to save ourselves a ticket. We call them sir because they are God's ministers. Right. And we honor them and we fear them and we are intimidated by them and we show some of that. You know, we expect our women to be shamefaced and modest and we expect our employees not to answer again and we expect them, our women to be quiet. And we expect our children not to set light by parents. And we expect our children not to roll their eyes at us. All these aspects of those under our authority as parents or husbands, we should show that to civil authority, to rulers. Those rulers could be the executive office. Policemen are part of the executive office, part of the executive component of our government for the enforcement of laws. You know, we write letters and address it as the honorable so-and-so. And there's titles for each of those men. We want to use those titles. Right. Oh, noble Felix. Right. Where does that come from? Oh, noble Festus. Where does that come from? Oh, noble Theo, oh, most excellent Theophilus. Where does that come from? Out of the pages of scripture. Mighty apostles, showing honor to an office that they did not hold, that was over them in civil matters. This is Romans thirteen one through seven, brethren. We want to be faithful to these things the Lord has shown us. We want to do them cheerfully. The apostle Paul would say when he's before Felix, "We accepted always, and in all this is Tertullus, we accepted always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness." The Apostle Paul would say, moments later, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, showing honor to political offices, though in religion they differed greatly, though in the application of politics they would have differed. Though he was the mighty apostle to the Gentiles, he showed his submission. I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Do you think the apostle should have cut loose when Festus said that he was mad and as much learning had made him mad? No, we don't do that as Christians. You know, if you wonder about Mordecai, I've already explained that, that Haman was an Agagite, which was a descendant of the king of the Amalekites that God had a perpetual indignation against. Elisha did not speak disrespectfully of Ahab or Jehoram, Because he was God's prophet, reminding them of their wickedness before God. When John corrected King Herod, he did not bring a railing accusation. He simply said you shouldn't have your brother's wife. And he was God's prophet. Jesus called Herod a fox. He was prince of the kings of the earth. When God gives you that title, you can call a king a fox. (laughs) If you know the faults, weaknesses, or offenses of a ruler, then honor him for his office. And you're always going to know those things. Throughout the Bible, David knew that about his own office of king. Although my house be not so with God. After describing a perfect ruler. Doesn't matter at all. You're still under authority and they only answer upward to God. You do not have the freedom of speech against authority. You can't curse them in your thoughts. Can't curse the rich in your bedchamber. Can't speak evil of dignities. Can't bring railing accusations against them. The angels don't even do it. And they're far greater in power and might. Since much of Romans thirteen one through 7 is going to have witnesses in the world, people are going to see us, how we submit to authority, how we submit to husbands, fathers, bosses on the job in the government, how we speak of the government, how we pay our taxes, how we talk about taxes, how we do those things, this is an opportunity for us to show our religion. Right. And that is the context it was brought up in in 1 Peter chapter 2 to shut the mouths of those that lay accusations against Christians that are not fair. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word that we might practice these things and show that we are the children of God, adore in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be at peace. And we can plant our vineyards, build our houses, have our children marry, and have happy streets filled with children because of the protection that the government grants us under God This is what Christians should do. May the Lord bless this church to do these things and to do them well. Amen. Amen.